let's look to the screen and pray the Lord's Prayer together, as is our custom. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that the Lord had spoken something to my heart uh, a few weeks ago that just keeps getting bigger and I'm going to say a lot in 60 seconds, but I believe that the Lord is about to bring into our presence a fresh season of drawing. I know that doesn't sound particularly profound, but what I mean by that is we are about to be surprised, joy by surprise, as we feel a hunger rising up in us and we find ourselves being interrupted in our schedule because the Lord is bringing to himself a bride that longs to be with him and longs to be in his presence. Now, with that being said, let's go forward with this present time, talking about what happens when we draw near to God. Now, I need to tell you this, today is not going to be a do this, this, and this to draw near to God. There, we, we probably need to talk about that at some time. Um, I had somebody the other day just say, Pastor, you, you talk about a devotional life. They were a new Christian. They said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what a devotional life is. So we probably need to bring that to the table before too long, what it means to have a devotional life. But this is not about drawing near step one, two, three, and four. This is about the principle of why drawing near is important. Let me just say this much and it'll be all that I have time to say about it today. When we talk about drawing near to God, we're talking about being in His presence, setting time aside for prayer, for the scriptures, and for worship. And uh, maybe the best way I can illustrate it, some of you might not think it's a good way, but I want to talk to you about somebody named Maggie. It, um, Maggie um, was kind of an odd-looking person. She was short. She had um, ears that were so long, sometimes I, I, would, I, I would be sure they were dragging the ground. She never said much. Uh, she was kind of awkward the way she moved. Oh, I don't think I told you, Maggie is a basset hound. Did I tell you that? Okay. Well, she was my basset hound from uh, a, a, a few years ago. And she was, uh, you know, our, our, our Bailey, our dog now is an indoor dog. In fact, if you ask Bailey, she would tell you that she allows us to stay in the house, not the other way around. But back in those days, we had three dogs. One of them was a, um, a great Dane and uh, we didn't want her to be arrogant. So we just told her she was a pretty good Dane and thought that would be sufficient. But um, they were outdoor dogs. They were outdoor dogs, and, um, but I would bring them in every night. I'd bring them in the house, and the way I would bring them in is uh, because I didn't know if they'd want to come in. You know, when I started, I started giving them uh, a milk bone dog biscuit when they'd come in the house, and uh, if you saw the movie 
um, Christmas story. Um, you remember the Bumpus's dogs. That's the way they would come into the house. They began to associate with, if we go in, uh, the handsome guy is going to give us a, a dog biscuit and they would start fighting, not fighting, but pushing each other, trying to be the first to get in. And they would be, you know, they'd want to get a bone. There was one, sometimes Sadie would, would kind of loop around and try to get a second bone come in twice. But there was Maggie that did something none of the others did. Whenever I called for the dogs to come in, they would just snap whatever I had in my hand and then go to their place and chow down. Maggie would refuse. She would refuse to take a bone. I, at first I was confused. Then I was, uh, it was, I was never irritated, but she would not take the bone. And I felt like, yeah, if I don't give it to you, you're going to get in there and start a fight with somebody else. But she would sit there and then I began to figure out something. When Maggie would come up to me, unlike the other dogs, she would sit on the top step and look at me and she would not take the bone until I got down on my knees or sat by her and rubbed her head, played with her ears, scratched her belly. I mean, it wasn't a long time, 45 seconds or a minute. And then after we had our little ritual, she would let me put a bone in her mouth and then she would come in and be fine. When she would go out, the other dogs were ready to go out. She would be at the end of the line and she'd sit by me again. And she would not go out till I sat down, rubbed her belly, scratched her ears, told her she was the queen of all dogs. And... Um, one of the kids one time said, Daddy, I guess Maggie is your favorite, isn't she? And I said, I don't know that you can say that. I said, I don't think, you know, I don't think I have a favorite. Then why is she with you everywhere you go? She's right on your heels. When you take a break, you're working in the garden or mowing the lawn. You sat down. She comes and stays in your lap. She won't leave you. Why is that? Is it because she's your favorite? And I said, no. I said, that's totally Maggie's doing. I haven't offered her anything different. I haven't treated her any differently. Anytime one of the dogs comes to me, I'll give them the same treatment. I love them. Um, you know, I loved my dogs. But Sadie did something that the others didn't do, and it did endear her to me. And that is, even before the treat, she wanted the touch. She wanted the presence. She wanted to be told how important she was. She wanted to be told how sweet she was. And I started thinking one day, I, I know that drawing near to God does not make you his favorite. God loves us all so much, we all think we're his favorite. He treats us like we're his favorite. He loves us so much that if we had been the only one that needed redemption, he would have come and died on the cross just for us, just for the one. I believe that with all my heart. But Maggie did something. It didn't affect her status. I didn't write her into my will or anything like that. She was one of the dogs. But because she was willing to draw near, she got some attention that the other dogs didn't get. I would have gladly given it. 
I think that's the way it is with the Lord sometimes. We don't get saved because of our works. We don't stay saved because of our works. But there is something powerful that happens when we draw near to God. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, we'll get to heaven quicker. Uh, not having a life, a good life of intimacy with God does not mean you're going to hell. I heard one preacher say that in that New Testament story where Jesus said, there'll be those that did a lot of work and a lot of good things, cast out demons and heal the sick. But he said on that day, I'll say to you, depart from me for I never knew you. And this preacher, and, and I'm not criticizing him. I just think this is a common misconception. Uh, this preacher said, we know that the word no in the Bible has to do with intimacy. Adam knew his wife and they had a son and that didn't mean they got introduced. It's talking about physical intimacy. And he was saying, when Jesus will say, I never knew you, he'll say, you're not coming to heaven because you never had an intimate relationship with me. You never drew near to me. Loved ones, I want to tell you, that sounds like a good Saturday night revelation. But I want to tell you, there's nothing further from the truth than that. You're not saved by works. You don't stay saved by works. And Jesus is not going to, on that day of reckoning, whatever that day was that was being represented by that story, Jesus is not going to say you didn't pray enough. Jesus is not going to say you didn't have a good enough devotional life. Because loved ones, no matter how good a devotional life we have, that is not good enough. Everything that counts as righteousness in our lives is because of Jesus. But I do want to tell you what I am convinced of. Intimacy has a bearing on our relationship with the Lord. It has a bearing on our faith, on our answered prayer, on our joy, on our witness, and certainly on our reward. So I want to just start off on a negative foot by saying what drawing close to God is not. It's not something to put you in God's favor. It's not something, it's not something to, to say that I'm, I'm better than you or I'm closer to him than you. Uh, and we have been, especially we Pentecostals, we get beat over the heads all of our lives because no matter what we do, we should have done more. No matter how long we prayed, we should have prayed more. No matter what we gave, we should have gave more. No matter how we serve, we should have served better. And we are a weird, weird hybrid, not in our doctrine, but the way we live our doctrine out. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works. And we stand and die at that crossroads. Say grace alone. Uh, you know, with, with faith in the Messiah. And then we turn around and try our best to live life in a perfect way, which we ought to, but we don't and we can't. And we have this strange hybrid of I'm saved by grace, but if I want to stay saved, I better do the works. Well, there is such a thing as works. There is such a thing as living a holy life. Let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But we have to be careful that we don't step over that invisible line that says his grace brought me in. Now it's up to me to stay in. We've got to be careful. But at the same time, we need to realize there is a beautiful benefit of drawing near. 
Sadie could have had her belly scratched every night. George could have had his belly scratched every night. But Maggie's the only one that drew near. So I want to tell you, if you're not drawing close, you're missing out, not on salvation, but you're missing out on the very best. Somebody said, well, not having a devotional life send me to hell? Absolutely not. It'll just make you experience a lot more hell on this side than if you have a life of intimacy. So let's, let's look at the scripture. There's two from Hebrews, one from Zephaniah. The two uh, passages from Hebrews, we need to know that um, the, the, the book of Hebrews was written. Um, people say it's kind of hard, it's kind of deep, and it has some heavy-duty sayings in it, and it does. It does. Hebrews, in my opinion, other than the book of Revelation, Hebrews is the most difficult to accurately uh, uh, dissect in the, in the New Testament. Um, it, it's not strange. It's not weird. But a lot of times the reason we have trouble with Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews, is because we don't understand. It was written to people that were facing great difficulty, great trial, great persecution, to the point that they were ready to second guess their faith. They were ready to deconstruct everything and say, well, this is just an unattainable goal, but I'll take this. I can't live here, but I'll try to live here. And the writer of Hebrews, we don't even know who the writer of Hebrews was. Uh, Paul is the leading candidate just simply because he wrote so many other stuff. One of the church fathers on commenting about the book of Hebrews they, someone said, do you know who wrote the book of Hebrews? He said, no, but I know someone who knows. And they said, who is that? He said, God. God only knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. But it was, it was almost universally accepted by the church as a word of God, and it is. But it was written to a people that were, that were so tired and so beat down and so worn out that he said, look, I want to tell you, there's about five things you've got to look out for. But he kept ending each of those sections by saying, look, you got to press on. You've got to draw near. Uh, you, you have to keep pressing in. And this is what he wrote in chapter 10. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. And we're going to talk about a couple of inferences from this in just a moment. Having your heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He said, don't walk away. Don't change the message. Don't doubt what God has said. He's faithful. And because he's faithful, you can draw near. In chapter 7, he said the former regulation is set aside. He's talking about the law because it was weak and useless. Now, boy, you say, Pastor, you're saying the Old Testament was weak and useless. No, 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 no. That's not what the writer is saying. I don't agree with pastors that say we need to unhitch from the Old Testament and, and it's just it's for another time and another people. No, you can't even understand the New Testament without grasping the Old Testament. And you got to understand the Old Testament was the Bible Jesus used. And everything Jesus said about the Word of God was in reference to the Old Testament. The New Testament was to come. The, the, Word of, the Word of God, the Old Testament, is not weak and useless. But it was weak and useless in this respect. 
the, the, the law of Moses was weak and useless in this respect. It was unable to be kept by anyone. Nobody could keep it. It was described in the New Testament as a schoolmaster. The law was not the teacher. The law was the one that would be assigned to bring the child to the teacher. Justin, would you come up here just a second? I'd go to you, but I don't know if the camera can get it. Um, in other words, Jesus never condemned the Old Testament. Jesus never condemned the Old Testament. He said, I've not come to do away with it, but I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. Okay. Roy, would you come over here? You're going to be my student and I'm going to be the law. Come on up here, young man. See, if I'm the law, Roy can say, I'll try to be just like you. I'll try to do everything you say. I'll try to keep all 614 commandments, every jot and tittle. But Roy's going to find out he can't please me. We want to be sure my wife wasn't here. He, 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 try as he might, he's going to do something with the wrong motive. He's going to do something with the wrong intent. He's going to do something late. He's going to do something early. The job of the law was not to perfect him. The law was to show, the purpose of the law was twofold. The law was to show what God expected. But it was useless in getting us to that point. So the law in the New Testament was described as a schoolmaster. And what in that culture was the schoolmaster designed to do? I would show up at this rich boy's house every morning and his parents would commit him to me and say, you are responsible for his education. So as the schoolmaster, I'd take him by the hand and we'd go for a walk and we'd talk about baseball and we'd talk about football and we'd talk about going camping and all that. And I would bring him to someone and I would say, Roy, this is Justin. He is your teacher. <laughs> and Justin could make him understand. Justin could do for him. It wasn't my job to do it. I couldn't be pleased. But Justin is able to open a door for Roy that I was not able to open. And that's the New Testament. That's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is the Old Testament. Jesus said, I've not come to do away with the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. And when we look at the life of Jesus, he's not saying that was an old useless system. Forget about it. He's saying, look, you can, you can keep every item of the law now because I have, Amen. because I have. And the righteousness we wear is his righteousness. Yeah. Now, teacher, would you take him home? Hold his hand because he's, he's a young fella. I don't want him to fall. Okay. Now it says that it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. You say, well, so you're saying the Old Testament's not perfect. No, what about Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, making wise the simple. No, it, it doesn't mean it was flawed in any way. It means that it was designed to take us to the master. It was designed to take us to the teacher. The law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced Something better has come. Jesus has come. And by Jesus, we draw near to God. We draw near to God. 
He doesn't need to be a God who is far off that we can't understand. The angel said his name will, shall be called Jesus, but he also said something else. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The beauty of Christmas, the beauty of the life of Christ is that Jesus was able to come to where we are and complete what we could not complete in and of ourselves. Okay, now let's go, let's kind of change thought patterns for a minute and go to Zephaniah. And um, Zephaniah gives a description of how the people of God had fallen away. And this is a pretty good fourfold description of those that are in rebellion. Um, uh, or, or, or in apostasy. Uh, she obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. And here's the fourth thing. We need to really hone in on this one today. She does not draw near to God. Have you ever felt like the Lord wanted you to talk to somebody and you couldn't get with them? You couldn't run them down. You couldn't make an appointment. They wouldn't keep a, 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 anything that you set up. It's because they will not draw near to anything, which ultimately is God, that will move against their sin. Well, now let's kind of get started. I want to tell you what I want to do today. I want to just introduce you to five people. We're not going to teach a lot about their lives um, in fact, they could be a five-part series on how to draw near to God, but I, I don't feel like that's what the Lord wants us to do. But I do feel like it's something you can do. I feel like you can look at these five people we're going to talk about. And if you just wanted to give a week to each one, I believe we can learn a lot about drawing near to God. And then I want to draw some conclusions that we can take away from here today. Um, the first thing, though, getting started, I want you to see is that we draw near in full assurance by faith. <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, I know you don't think you're going to make it, but we can have full assurance. We can know that the one who promised is able to keep his promises. He said, and because we can have full assurance and because we know God keeps his promises, we don't have to be subject to our circumstances. We can draw near, draw near with full assurance, knowing that you may not know how, you may not know when, you may not know where, but God will keep his promise. He, he, he will do it. Number two, we draw near because Christ has fulfilled the law completely, opening a door for us, which had been somewhat closed before. Oh, I know that, that there were righteous people in the Old Testament and Abraham was the father of the faithful, but everybody in the Old Testament was made righteous by looking forward. In this age, we are made righteous by looking backwards to the work of Jesus. They look forward to the perfect sacrifice. We look back to the perfect sacrifice. Number three, um, we said that rebellion is always marked by disobedience and unteachable spirit. I remember one time as a youth pastor learning how uh, an unteachable spirit and disobedience often go hand in hand. There was a lady that had announced that she had received direction from the Lord that she was, I don't want to give too much details. We're online. You never know who's listening, but she had been given a, a direction she felt was from the Lord. And I said, that's not a biblical. I mean, I was only 19 years old. I, I said, but that's not biblical. 
it, it contradicts this, 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 and this. And as I went through my Bible showing her, I said, this, this is not from the Lord. This is a deceiving spirit. I remember she took the Bible out of my hand and said, I don't care what the Bible says. All I know is what the Holy Ghost told me. And, I've, and, and she ruined her life. <clears throat> um, as far as I know, it hasn't been put back together yet. But she was disobedient and she was unteachable. And there, thirdly, is a trust in false gods. There is such a rise of atheism today. And I'm not saying that at all. Oh, this whole world's just going to hell. Hope they get there in a hurry. I, I don't mean it that way. I just mean, especially when I find a television program I like or something, I like to do a little background on the actors. And so many, it's like it's in, in fashion now to declare yourself an atheist. But I want to tell you something, loved ones. I've observed this in my life. I've observed it as a student of history. If you deny the true and the living God, you don't become an atheist. You just turn to another God. Uh, there, there are very few, there are some, there are very few people that identify as an atheist that I think are really atheists. Most of them are agnostic. You know, it's a God that can't be known or God, God to you may be different than God to me. Uh, you know, or, or we're all have a little bit of the divine in us. We're all gods. But most people, you got to understand when they turn from the true and the living God, they just turn to another God. They just turn to another God. And uh, it goes back to the problem in Romans where it says that mankind decided he wants a manageable God, a God that can be conceived of. We want a God that we can fashion and we can control and we can understand and we can do none of that. Okay. And then they refuse to draw near to God. Now, let me talk to you about these five people very quickly. Um, number one, there is Moses. Now, Moses, his life uh, where he meets God begins classically. Uh, I say where he meets God. Moses was raised in the home of his uh, parents for his most formative years. So I don't mean that he didn't know about God till he got in the desert. But it was in the desert that God gave him an opportunity to draw close. Moses teaches us that drawing near involves a willingness to go into a new place, a willingness to go into a new place. Some of us will never go into a new place because it violates our doctrine or it pulls us out of our comfort zone or it doesn't fit our accepted role uh, criteria of things spiritual or things religious. But the Bible says, and we've talked about this so many times, um, the Bible says that when Moses, he was over, you know, he, he, he had lived a long life already. Uh, he was older than I am at that, at that point. And he's out in the wilderness with his sheep and he sees an unusual sight. There's a bush that is burning uh, or on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses, it says, turned aside so that he could understand what he was seeing. Loved ones, I want to tell you, let's don't be guilty of when we see something we don't understand of turning the wrong way. Now, now we need to be wise. We need to be discerning. And if we're not, we'll be like the New Testament says, we'll be like ships blown about by every wind of doctrine. 
you know, uh, if you fall for everything, you'll stand for nothing. That's an old saying that's, that's really true. But at the same time, don't be surprised if God brings something new to your life that is so new, you need to say, this deserves a look. This deserves me drawing a little bit closer. And when you get there, you may not understand it any more than you did when you started turning, but you have the grace to remove your shoes because even though you don't understand it, you have a sense that you're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. And the Bible puts it this way. It said, when God saw Moses turn, God began to speak. Now that doesn't mean God didn't know if he was going to turn or not. God said, oh, oh, what's he going to do? What, what, what? Yeah, he turned. No. God knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. But what that verse means is to me, it means that Moses had a choice. He could keep on going. He, you see, it wasn't uncommon to see a burning bush, but the bush was always consumed. What was uncommon is it was a burning bush that was not consumed. And God, when God, when the scripture says, when God saw, it wasn't saying that God didn't know what he was going to do and he was waiting for him to make up his mind. No, I think the emphasis is that when, when Moses did the right thing, then God began his revelation. God waits for us. You know, I, I, I read the other day, and it was like I was reading it for the first time, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and began to talk to her about an amazing, unprecedented thing that was going to happen in her life. I, I'm amazed at the way Gabriel conversed with her. You know, he would say something and wait for her response. Then he would say something else and wait for her response. Then he'd go a little deeper and wait for her response. And loved ones, Mary was a classic, classic example of the way we ought to be. I, I, I know we say, oh, well, she's had an angel talking to her. It shouldn't have been a problem. Hey, if you were told that you were going to have a baby when you were a virgin and nobody was going to believe you probably, that puts it in a little different light. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of history looking at Mary, <coughs> and it was not on their radar. But she responded the right way. Uh, it was her choice to respond the right way. Zechariah, who the angel had visited before, he made up his mind early. I'm not going to that burning bush. Uh, we've been, you know, we've been praying, but now you're telling me something miraculous is going to happen. I'm not going there. And so the angel said, okay, that's your choice. Um, I, I want to help you though, Zechariah. I'm going to help you because God's still going to use you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to fix you so you can't say anything until God is done doing what he wants to do. Because every time you open your mouth, if this conversation's any indicator, every time you open your mouth, you're going to get deeper in the hole. But Mary wasn't like that. She chose, she responded. You see, the walk with God is like a dance. I'm no dancer, but I do know this. When you dance, at least the old classic dances, you had someone who had to lead and someone then had to respond. And every movement was a result of a leading and a responding, a drawing and a yielding. That's the way our walk with God is. It's not that God has no control over it, but God chooses to be followed. He doesn't want to drive you. 
Now you say, I, I, I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. Well, you may not be a dancer. I'm not a dancer. When, when my Molly got married and we had our father-daughter dance, I just held on to her and kind of moved a little bit. I don't, I, I don't know that my feet ever left the ground. I, I, but, I, but it was special for her and special for me. And, um, but when you're really dancing, someone has to lead. But someone that's leading is going to stop dancing if, they, if their partner won't follow. And that's what God is after in us. From Moses, we learn that drawing near involves a willingness to go to a new place, a place called holy ground. I, I read an article the other day of one of the leading Christian voices in America. Um, not one of us denominationally, but it was just such a blessing. He, he, he talked about at 64 years of age. Now I know about nobody in here is that old, so you, don't, you can't understand that. But at 64 years of age, he embraced a doctrine that he had taught against all of his life. He, he, he realized that the Christian life is always going to be us following, us responding. And it was such a blessing. Joshua is number two. From Joshua, we learn that drawing near involves a season of obscurity that will only blossom later. Um, see, we have a tendency, all of us do, we have a tendency to follow the star, to follow the miraculous, to follow the dynamic. But God's way has always been to lead us to a place of obscurity, to lead us to a place where we're not seen. And then at the time of his choosing, he will exalt us. Um, it, it's the pattern of almost every great man and woman of God you read in the, New, in, the, in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Now, not everybody do we know their background, but whenever God gives us the background of many great men and women of God, there's always a common element, and it is the element of obscurity. They're sent to a place where nobody knows them. They're sent to a place where nobody's ever heard of them. Uh, it says that when Elijah came to the king, he came out of the wilderness. He came from a place called Tishba. And I remember reading one of the old 18th or 19th century scholars. It said, the best way I can convey the meaning of this place to my readers. And this was something that was just vulgar and common in the 1800s. Tishbe must be seen as the armpit of the world. And out of the armpit of the world, a man walks into the king's palace and says, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain. Then he turned around and walked out. God had done something in the wilderness to that man that gave him that kind of confidence, that kind of assurance. Israel demanded a king before God wanted them to have a king. And he, we're not even sure that God wanted to have a king or if God just knew that it was coming. But God had anticipated a king, but it was not yet time. Samuel, who was the last judge and, and the first major prophet to us that was solely a prophet, he said, Lord, they have rejected me. I, I told them this isn't a good idea. And God said, Samuel, don't be personally offended. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me. And they got their king 
And boy, he was, he was a head and shoulders above everybody else. He was the most logical choice for king. But there was one thing wrong because the people stepped out of the will of God and stepped out of his timing. He had about 15 minutes of preparation time. And they find him hiding among the baggage because he had been anointed by Samuel. And now it's time to choose. And this man who was just a farmer is now named King. He was an imposing figure. But his successor, who was his replacement, was a king par excellence. He ruled for 40 years, just like Saul did. But David, even though he had tragic mistakes and tragic consequences followed those mistakes, David was a man after God's own heart and God promised him there will always be a, 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 a son of David seated on the throne as long as Israel exists. And even though there were interruptions, the line continued. And now Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is king. And one day he's going to come back and be king in our presence, or we in his presence, is perhaps is a better way to say it. But Saul, technically, from the world's view, had more um, <clears throat> qualifications than David. What made Saul an utter abject failure and what made David the great king of Israel? I'll tell you what it was. Of course, there was their attitude. There was their quest for God. They're drawing near to God. But I want to tell you, if God really wants to use you, he's going to do what he did to David. You're going to run from your enemies for a while. You're going to be in the wilderness for a while. Because loved ones, I want to tell you, I'm not whining, don't want you to pat me on the back. Well, I, you can pat me on the back, but that's not why I'm saying this. I've lived long enough to understand that you learn things in the wilderness you cannot learn anyplace else. You can't learn the lessons of character if your world is solely one victory after another. You, you can't do it. You can't do it. Um, I remember reading a, a biography by one of the Boston Celtics, and they said they played back in the 60s, and they said in, uh, I think it was 68, something like that, they said we were in, in such deep depression. We couldn't get in. We were so depressed. And he goes on and says it's because we didn't win the championship that year. We had won nine championships out of 11 years. And they were not used to anything other than rings that the champions wore. And boy, I started thinking, boy, that's the way we are. Whenever we, ha we have victory after victory after victory, we celebrate it. But we also need to understand, you never learn at the top what you can learn at the bottom or the middle. And um, Joshua, uh, he, he was, you know, to me, the toughest job in the Old Testament is the man that followed Moses. Uh, I would not have taken that job because you couldn't possibly be enough like Moses to please people that loved Moses. And you don't want to be unlike Moses. Then they'll say, Yo, you, you don't have the touch of God on you. So I just figured automatically, a lot of times in a great church or a great denomination or a great corporation, the person that follows the truly great leader is just a filler and you start the countdown to their replacement as soon as they step in. It wasn't that way with Joshua. Whenever Joshua stepped up, God made an audacious statement. He said, I will be with you 
just like I was with Moses. Now, I don't know if we understand what God was saying. He said, there will be no interruption. I will be just as powerful in your life as I was with his, in his. Now, I tell you, I think I've narrowed it down to what happened. Whenever Moses would go into the prayer tent, the prayer of meet or the tabernacle of meeting, tent of meeting, it says that God would come and talk to Moses like a man talks to his friend face to face. Moses would come out with such a glory on his face that he had to wear a veil. And um, I mean, it was a, it was a phenomenal encounter with God. Um, the, the leaders could only come so close to the tent. Joshua was the only exception because he was Moses' right-hand man. And, and the Bible says this, Joshua would stay at the tent door while Moses was encountering God. It was as though Moses said, I'm not allowed. I mean, uh, Joshua said, I'm not allowed in there. That's not my place but I am going to get just as close as I can. And I, he, he, I, I started to lay down, but it's, it's more doubtful if I get up these days. So um, um, he would lay at the very present. In other words, he says, look, this isn't about me. This is God and Moses. God is shaping the future of the nation through that man in there. I'm his helper, but that's all I am. But oh, I hunger for that presence. I hunger for that blessing. So he would lay at the tent door. And then when Moses would leave with the glory of God upon him, you know, Joshua would probably tell them he's coming down. But the Bible says that he would linger behind. He would stay there. The show was over. The presence had lifted to everybody's mind and intent. But what heaven understood and hell didn't understand and the people didn't understand <laughs> is that even though Moses had gone down back into the camp, there was another hungry heart that stayed in the presence of God just as long as he possibly could. Loved ones, we've got to move. And I want to say this. I believe God's speaking this to my heart. There are some of you that you have pursued God that way. You have prayed when nobody else was praying. You have clung to the presence when nobody else was clinging. And I want you to know in the name of Jesus, he has seen this. He knows this and he's going to reward you. You're going to be the first fruits of this drawing that I'm talking about. Joshua was that way. Joshua said, it's all right. It's all right. I'll be second for 40 years. I'll be second for 40 years. I will be in obscurity. Oh, he had his moments, sure. But he said, I will be in obscurity. I will be in the shadow of Moses because he says there's no better, there's no better place to be than in the shadow of Moses because Moses is in the presence of God. And he led Israel to a place of fulfillment that Moses couldn't get them to. I want you to think about that. This man that received the most impossible job description on planet earth was the one God used to bring Israel into the land, not Moses. Well, let's hurry on. You guys are not listening as fast as they did first service. <laughs> Samuel. From Samuel, we learned that drawing near involves being available even when we know we are over our heads. 
The thing I love about Samuel is so many things. It's one of my favorite stories. And we just read it with the dedication today. But Samuel was a little fella. We don't know, probably between the ages, somewhere between five and eight or nine years old. He was just a little fella that had been brought to Shiloh and was tending to the things of God. And God began to speak to him. And the Bible says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. That didn't mean that he wasn't, you know, a believer. It didn't mean that he, he had been raised his whole life to be a servant of God. But he did not know the Lord in the sense of understanding the prophetic and understanding his ministry and understanding his destiny. As far as he knew, he would just be a lamplighter the rest of his life in the house of God. But God had something special and Samuel realized immediately, boy, there, there's something when an elementary school aged boy can hear a voice he's never heard and, and embrace it as truth the way Samuel did. He was afraid to tell Eli because part of the word he heard is that God was bringing judgment on Eli because of the way he was not raising his family right. And it's clear from Samuel's uh, description of this that he, he was in way over his head. But he knew that the safest place to be, uh, Melanie, how did, how did you put it today? The safest place to be is in the presence of God. And he knew that God could be trusted. He knew that he was not, he had probably seen prophets come in. He had probably seen great men of God come in and he knew he didn't even come up to their belt probably, but he knew that God could be trusted even when we're in over our heads. And so he spent the rest of his life in the, it says he was raised in the presence of God, raised in the presence of God. In two or three weeks, I want to talk to you about raising our children in the presence of God. And Samuel was raised in the presence of God. He was overwhelmed with glory, knew that he was no, no way could he control it. But the only thing he could do is trust and rest in the arms of the Lord. Anna is another one. From Anna, we learn that drawing near often begins in a place of deep hurt or desperation. I read about her life and... She had been married for, uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, about seven years. And then her husband died. And she had been a, a widow, of course, with her husband dying. But she had spent decades in the house of God, serving in the temple, serving people. Now, maybe she expected to get married again. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I just don't know. Maybe she had expectations. She was still young enough that she could marry another man. It was fine to marry if you were a widow or a widower in the economy of Israel. Paul said to the church in the New Testament, he said, you need to take care of the widows, but let the widows be of a certain age because if they're younger, they're probably going to remarry. And that wasn't a condemnation. That was saying, yeah, they're, they're still young enough to marry. And yeah, just... Don't worry about them. Worry about those that are widows indeed is the way the King James puts it. <coughs> and um, I don't know what was in her heart. She may have just made a decision to serve or it may have been that her circumstances just 
nothing else ever opened up? I don't know. But in the, in the place of not being able to have children, in the place of not being able to have a husband, in the place of what every Jewish girl was taught was their future and their destiny, it all seemed to be taken away from her. But instead of becoming bitter and angry, she said, I'm going to find a place that I can serve. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm single, but I don't want to be. Don't, don't just show up at church tomorrow with a suitcase and say, I'm just, I'm giving up. I'm going to just serve in the, no, keep praying. Run that man down. Run that woman down. Whoever finds a wife finds a good thing. I'm not saying forget. No, no, no. <laughs> but I'm saying this. Sometimes these desert places are unexpected. And sometimes they are not what we expect a desert place to be. And we've got to learn that we don't wait till everything's right to serve and to draw near to God. We know that God is good and everything he does is good. You know, I remember one time hearing um, a, a man say, and, and well, it had happened to me too. He said, I heard some in my spirit, I heard someone say uh, that I assume was the spirit. He said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he said, I looked around me at the world and I said, this ain't full of his glory. Tell you what, you look at the news today, you, you, you hunger for a place that's full of his glory. You, you try to find one. And this had happened to me too when I was at another church. And he and I both said, Lord, how can they say the whole earth is full of his glory? Maybe before the fall of man, maybe in the future. But I don't think the whole earth is full of your glory right now. And the Lord spoke to my heart the same thing he spoke to this man's heart. He said, when you dwell in the presence of God, you see everything differently. When you dwell in the presence of God, you experience everything differently. They were able to say the whole earth is full of his glory because they were in the very presence of God. And they knew that there was more going on than the progress report that we received. Okay, and... Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. From Mary, we learn the priority of drawing near, even in the face of clamoring voices and demands. Now, Martha, was a, her, her love language was acts of service. And boy, do we need that. We need people that'll just get it done. And, and if it, even if it's not their place, they'll see that it gets done. I mean, that's just their nature. And then we've got people like Mary that their preference is to be in the altar for an extended period of time or be in the presence of Jesus. Mary was upset, said, Lord, we've got a lot of guests here. You are here. Your disciples are here. We've got guests from all over the place. Tell my sister to help me. We've got pies to get out of the oven. We've got fruit to cut. I need help. And was that wrong? <clears throat> Absolutely not. I mean... I hesitate to mention, you know, blueberry and peach cobbler this close to lunch. But, but I want to tell you, we need that. And, it's, and I want to tell you, there's a time to be in the kitchen. There's a time to be doing whatever God has called you to do, serving others and serving your family. But there's a time 
And Jesus calls it the better choice. Jesus wasn't saying, oh, don't work and just stay in church all the time. Paul said, listen, you Thessalonians, you need to understand this. I know you're having trouble. I know you're being persecuted and I know you're losing stuff. But if you don't work, you don't eat. I mean, he said, you have to do your part. If you don't work, you don't eat. I understand that. But there's a time when the best thing you can do, in spite of a dozen other things yelling for you, there's a time where you learn the best thing you can do is just slip into the presence of God and draw near to God. Now, what are the Christian life lessons? What, Pastor, what do you want to send me home with? Four things. Number one, drawing near to God begins with his invitation. This is not something you can work up in your flesh. This is not something that you can say, I'm going to control the narrative here. God has to invite us. And it begins with his invitation. John says, why do we love him? Because he first loved us. You know, drawing near to God begins with his invitation. Number two, drawing near is linked with two responses, mine and his. You know, God says, come to me. And the New Testament says, draw near to God and God will respond by drawing near to you. But then there are other times that God initiates it directly. And the psalmist put it this way. He said, Lord, when you say, seek my face, I will say your face I will seek. I mean, it, it's kind of an awkward translation into English. You wonder how they, how'd they put that to music. You know, what, what tune did they use? Seek my face, Lord, your face I will seek. The point was this. David, or the psalmist was saying, whenever you draw me, I'm going to respond. And you made a promise, whenever I approach you, you will respond. Number three, drawing near is a choice. Drawing near is a choice. Now, again, drawing near is not how we get to heaven. It's how we live the Christian life. Um, some people view God as an investor or part owner in their lives who has an opinion. Maybe has majority shares, but I, it's still there's a lot of other influence in my life. Some view God as an insurance salesman that has the premium fire insurance policy. Others view God as a janitor who's in the basement that can come up and clean up every mess I make. Then I want him to go back down into the janitor. But he truly is Lord. That's, a, that's an over, well, it's not overused, but it's under, overly misunderstood is what I'm trying to say. He truly is Lord of all. And number four, drawing near is a lifestyle. It's not just we don't draw near just when we feel drawn by the Spirit. But we draw near, especially when we feel drawn by the Spirit. But God built into the life of Israel and the life of the church. He built in regular opportunities for drawing near. He said every seventh day is to be a Sabbath. And you're not to do any work like you do on the other six days. And it was to be a day of rest. It was to be a day of family. It was to be a day of rejoicing. And loved ones, I think we don't understand the power of the Sabbath. The, the power of the Sabbath is not in a day, a particular day. People get all upset over which day is the Sabbath day. Um, we know that the Sabbath 
in Israel was Saturday. We know that the church made a move, and I, know, I don't want to argue, but we know that the church made a move to worship on the first day of the week. Paul would deal with this in the Colossians, and he would say, every day is a day unto the Lord. Um, you know, I remember back in the 70s when we had our first oil embargo, and it was tossed around on Capitol Hill that driving would be prohibited on Sunday. And of course, the churches got all upset. But somebody asked me, um, I mean, I was, I was on staff, I wasn't even the senior pastor. But uh, somebody asked me, what are we going to do if we can't drive on Sunday? And I said, we'll meet another day. And they said, we're not going to meet on the Sabbath? I said, we don't meet on the Sabbath now. What's important is the Sabbath principle because the Sabbath principle says you need, see what God was doing. He said, I want to show you that I can do more and you can do more in six days than you can in seven. If you put me first, same thing as the tithe, you can do more with 90% than you can do with a hundred percent. If you put me first, see God, God has built in these automatic draw nears drawn years. There were sacred assemblies. Well, let me wrap it up with this. Um, I want to do two things. I want to tell you a story. I'm going to drink water. When my kids were little, um, we always prayed in the morning before, you know, school. We always prayed at night before bedtime. But um, because I didn't want my children to resent the church or whatever, um, a lot of my stuff, a lot of my praying, a lot of my work was like after eight or nine at night. I would just go into the night because I didn't want my children to resent the church or resent God. or I, I just wanted to, to give them the time they deserve. And, and I developed a, a habit because I, I was up so late. And then sometimes I'd just wake up in the middle of the night and I would go to the bedroom of each of my children and I would just, not, not a long drawn out thing, but I would just go to each child and lay my hand on their head or on their shoulder, their back, however they were laying. And I would just pray. I'd pray in the spirit. I'd pray for God to bless them. And um, I, 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 it turned into a time of that was when I really, you know, because little kids don't always have a lot of patience with long prayers. So I figured I'll get them while they're asleep. And, uh, and that really worked. And I would just bless them. And uh, a, a lot of victories were won. A lot of battles were fought. And a lot of blessings were realized from that just few minutes in the middle of the night when I'd go to my children. Um, now, there were basically one of three things that happened. Three or four things. Now, you've got to understand, no matter how they responded, they were my child. No matter how they responded, I love them with all my heart. No matter how they responded, they were all my favorites. I mean, every child's my favorite. And, uh, but the first response, and this was the most common response, I'd lay my hands on them and pray. And you know, what happened most of the time was absolutely nothing. No response, just steady, rhythmic, breathing, snoring, you know, uh, just nothing. I knew my prayers were working, but the child did not respond at all. Sometimes I would lay my hand on a child. They might be sick or they might have had a bad day, just tired. And I get, <clears throat> you know, resistance. 
get your hands off me. Get that corn out of my face. You know, it was just a, <laughs> just heavy resistance. And so I'd say, you know, I'm going to get whipped here. I, I'll just lay my hand on their pillow and pray. But sometimes, sometimes, and this was so special, I'd put my hand like on their, uh, on their shoulder or on their head, and I think they were sound asleep, and I'd feel a little hand just touch my hand or touch my arm. It was a response. No words. I don't even think they woke up. It, it's just they sense peace. This is daddy. This is not an intruder. And I would, I would, I would stay till they moved their hand, even if I was through praying. I would just pray, and sometimes it would turn into 20 minutes, half hour. But I want to tell you, sometimes it was nothing. Every once in a while it was resistance. Special times was when they returned my touch. But the best times is when they would wake up and respond to me. Daddy, I love you. I remember praying for one of my little girls, and I thought she was just dead to the world. I got up to leave and my heart melted as I heard, keep praying, daddy, keep praying. And boy, I was exhausted. I was worn out, but you know what I did? I went back and I kept praying. I prayed until I knew she was totally out. Loved ones, I want to tell you this. When God begins to draw you, when God begins to give this invitation to come, you're always going to be loved. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And God is not offended when we don't respond. God is not even offended when we fight him. You know, it's our spirit says, I don't want to talk. Get your hands off me. I don't like the way you're managing my life. just keeps putting his hands on us. If we knock it away from our head, he'll put it on our shoulder. Now, if you do it in a bad attitude long enough, he'll put it on your backside. But every once in a while, he knows we're so tired that we can't even fully wake up, but we just, we sense him and we just hold him. Just hold him. And every now and then, keep praying, Daddy. We wake up and it's a moment of glory. It's a moment that heaven comes down. You and I have a very big decision to make. How will we respond to the touch of the Master?